scripture reading today is from John 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord. it seems to me that most of the women in the Bible are actually a little bit out there or something. You know, not at all like June Cleaver or the model evangelical woman of the 80s or whatever version it was that my church was trying to peddle to me when I was a teenage girl. It was all about Proverbs 31. The virtuous woman eateth not the bread of idleness. She riseth at night and giveth meat to her household. If I riseth at night, it might be to go look at the moon or maybe look for a glass of wine. I'm probably not going to put a pot roast in the oven. The women in the Bible are also not much like the medieval saints. Women who, according to the men who wrote about them, were not interested in food, sex, or pleasure of any kind who the men in charge praised in their writings for such amazing holy feats as eating nothing for three years. Praised because, I quote, they excreted nothing from their pores, they never sweated, discharged no filth or dandruff from their hair, and only occasionally gave forth spittle from their mouths or tears from their eyes. Right. St. Ida of Louvain, so the stories go, ate only moldy bread. She didn't want anything that tasted pleasant to pass her lips. Once she went for 11 days eating only the little flowers of the lime tree. The woman in the story we read just now sounds more like someone who might eat the whole lime tree. Bark, leaves, roots given as she seems to be to excess. And she's so brazenly sensual. Traditional interpretations often read her as extraordinarily subservient, humbly obedient. That doesn't really feel right to me. The women in the Bible are generally not very nunnish, honestly especially in the Old Testament, where the women usually get more than just a mention. 
where they are full-blooded characters. Not simply one thing or the other. They're all sorts of things. They're smart. They're tricky. They're daring. They're sexual or not sexual. They're interesting. They're interesting. Hagar gives birth to a whole people, a whole other faith, as it turns out, by having sex with another woman's husband, the father of monotheism. To say that that's an edgy story is an understatement. Her story undermines the patriarchal narrative big time. Sarah, the wife, is cranky and menopausal and not demure. I'm guessing if she riseth at night, it's not to giveth meat to her household. Esther saves her people not by being pure or holy or virginal, quite the opposite. And you know, all these stories, they were a great embarrassment to the church fathers. These old stories of human people who had sex and children and unseemly emotions. The fathers believed in fasting and celibacy and decorum. They argue a lot about how to understand these old stories, how to clean them up, how to make them edifying. It makes me happy to see this woman in the New Testament behaving so inappropriately. Mary took a pound of scented oil, an absurd amount really, like a whole big bottle of olive oil, 16 ounces of some heavily scented essential oil, and she used it all at once. It's not exactly a nice thing. It's too much. It's a lot. The smell would be overpowering. Mary pours this enormous amount of oil over Jesus' feet, and then she gets down on her knees, and she wipes it all around his feet, maybe up the ankles, ankles a little, with her hair. I can tell you that she was not following the rules for proper behavior. It's not at all surprising that Judas would object to this. Everyone there was probably gasping under their breath. Oh my gosh. It's true that people washed their feet when they came into people's houses, their own feet, but a woman wiping a man's feet with her hair with a pound of perfume in public would be as strange then as it would be now. And women generally didn't even let their hair down in public then, much less rub their hair over a man's feet. Mary in the story is violating some pretty hefty and enduring societal norms. I think maybe... Paul and Luther wouldn't agree with me, I'm sure. But I think maybe as a woman or a marginalized person, when you do something, make a statement, act in a way that makes other people feel uncomfortable, you might be on to something. Because everyone feeling comfortable and the sort of naked truth of a thing don't usually go together. Mary's not behaving how she's supposed to behave. Her actions are more like some sort of maybe semi-offensive performance art than sort of some modest submission to male authority. All the gospel writers have a version of this story. Different locations, times, different women. In Luke, the women anointing Jesus' feet with excessive perfume is identified as a sinner. 
In every case, the act aroused indignation in the people who witnessed it. Judas says, why was this perfume not sold for good money and given to the poor? But that line of questioning actually seems pretty restrained to me under the circumstances. I mean, you practically expect some incensed, red-faced, puritanical patriarch to take her and burn her at the stake. And well, what happens to this woman in the dominant Christian tradition over time may not be quite like being burnt at the stake, but it's pretty bad, I think. A more insidious sort of violence. So, yeah, okay, in, in 15, or 1591, no, 591. <laughs> That's pretty early. The Pope Gregory the Great gave this sermon that was really, really influential. In the sermon, he conflated all the stories of the anointing women in the four Gospels and said that they were all Mary Magdalene. And then he claimed that she was a former prostitute. Though the text in Luke says she was a sinner, as a woman reading, I think we'd be clear that there are 8,000 ways for a woman to be a sinner, most of them having nothing to do with prostitution. But Gregory the Great was pretty sure, I quote, that this woman had previously used the oil to perfume, for perfume her flesh in forbidden acts. But now, as she planted her mouth on the Redeemer's feet, for every delight she had had in herself, she now immolated herself before him. Does that sound a little bit like a male fantasy to you? But with that supposition of Gregory the Great, this woman's identity is determined for nearly 1,400 years. Finally, scholars have sorted through this conflation of Marys called the Composite Mary, recognizing that Pope Gregory the Great was not such a great exegete. There's no indication in the text that the woman with the perfume was a prostitute. But the idea that she was has never gone away. In the film, The Last Temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese conflates her story with still more women's stories in the Gospels. The woman at the well who had many husbands and the woman caught in adultery. And so he invents this scene with a Barbara Hershey Mary, naked and covered with tattoos, she has sex with a series of men while others, including Jesus, watch. Maybe Martin Scorsese was just fleshing out Pope Gregory's the Great's fantasy. But really? These men have taken these women who have shockingly, for the time, important roles in the scripture, like the first witness to the resurrection, and they have diminished their stories to a sort of pornography. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to imagine that the more ironclad patriarchal elements in the church began referring to Mary Magdalene as a prostitute because they wanted to undermine the capacity of women to appeal to her as an example of a woman leader. In the apocryphal literature, she is known as the apostle to the apostles. In the dominant narrative, 
She becomes a sexualized temptress. I mean, have you seen the stories about these recently restored Coptic murals in the crypts of Rome, depicting women in various ways that suggest that they were leaders in the early church? And then have you heard the Vatican insisting, no way, impossible, it couldn't be. Maybe once you decide on a grand narrative, you have to go to great lengths to maintain it, mutilate, conflate, diminish. The Bible doesn't mention what the Mary in this story or in any of the other stories looked like, how old she was, the shape of her body, whether she was stout or whether she was 65, whether her hair was gray and coarse or silky and brown, not a word. She may have been old. She may have had crooked teeth, brown teeth, missing teeth, wrinkled skin, eyes filmed over with cataracts, not a sexy, loose woman with scented oil bent before a man, but a woman who knows what she looks like? Who cares? I think she was a prophet. Prophets act weird. That's one of their hallmarks. The word of God comes to Jeremiah, and he speaks it by wrapping a waistcloth around his loins. Later, he tears it off and stuffs it in the cleft of a rock where it rots. Ezekiel eats a scroll, eats a scroll, as a sign that he carried the word of God around inside of him. Isaiah walks around naked and barefoot. And though their stories involve loins, mouths, and nakedness, I've never seen those prophets objectified. Prophets do disturbing things to break open the dominant narrative so people might see a whole different true, something that they haven't been seeing. Prophets mean to disrupt the current state of affairs, the religious establishment, the roar of empire. Maybe it took this woman to see the boys, disciples are all gathered around having a meal. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe there was this air of sort of glory and triumph, drinking, laughing, swashbuckling. The boys were always kind of hoping that Jesus would rise up and defeat the Romans, the way that sort of thing always happened. Power, strength, control, might, tough, tough, tough. They weren't really into vulnerability. You know them. They were always arguing about who was the greatest. Peter might have anointed Jesus' head at this point, proclaiming him king in the usual way of kings. Mary drops to her knees and pours the perfume on his feet, which could only mean one thing. The only man who got his feet anointed was a dead man. She was anointing Jesus for his burial. She's prophesying his death. She's disrupting a scene. She's telling the truth, and she's making everyone uncomfortable. The men step in. Jesus says, leave her alone. 
Let her finish her message. Things are going crazy out there. You can't change the narrative that rules the world by telling it in the same way it's always told. Jesus isn't going to gallop in on a white horse and save the day with some glorious display of manly strength and power. By all the usual measures, he's going to be defeated. He's going to suffer humiliation and die. You don't change the narrative by taking on the roles that the powers that be have already written. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. It's not a real revolution if the rebels just take their place on the same old throne. Nothing is subverted. The woman in this story prophesies another way. And Jesus is immediately with her. He says to Judas, the poor you'll always have with you. This doesn't mean that he's reversing his whole way of being for the poor. He's just saying, look, I'm going to die very soon. She's right. You can't do what Jesus means to do, reveal the revolutionary love and infinite world-altering mercy of God by taking up the mighty power. He's going to empty it out. People usually thought of God or the gods as the most powerful forces in the world. To win battles and defeat enemies, you had to get the gods on your side or pretend to get them on the side so the people would believe you. But the story of Jesus is about a God who doesn't play that game at all, will not make enemies will not do violence, gives up power for love. A sort of unseemly thing, actually, for a god. The woman in the story is often praised for her subservience. I wouldn't put it that way. Perhaps more like something deeply disarming. And it seems like Jesus takes a cue from her uses her behavior to guide his own. Because a little later on, Jesus does for his disciples something quite like what Mary did for him. They're at a supper. He gets up, he lays aside his garments, maybe a little like letting his hair down. He wraps a towel around his waist and he pours water into a basin. And then he begins to wash his disciples' feet wiping their feet with a towel which he'd been using to cover himself. That's a crazy story to illustrate the love of God. It's almost too much. It's a lot. Talk about disarming love. I don't know exactly how you come to feel that love. But I think it's the compassion that undergirds the whole hope of things. I think it's the sort of love that could change the world. And I think the world desperately needs us to show it without delay.